This is a HeadGum Podcast. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I don't know the truth. Welcome to Factually, I'm Adam Conover, and you know, I kind of hesitate to say this while so much of my audience is behind the wheel while they're listening to this, but did you know that it's more or less legal in America to kill someone with your car? I mean, sure, if you're drunk or if you flee the scene, then there's a chance American justice will bring down the hammer, but if you're sober and you happen to mow down a cyclist, small family, or a Girl Scout through sheer negligence or just driving like an asshole, you won't face much or any consequence. Our legal system will shrug, say, hey, shit happens, and let you off on your merry way. Great for you, bad for the person you just manslaughtered, or woman slaughtered, or person slaughtered. I am not exaggerating. Negligent driving might be fatal, but it's almost never prosecuted. In New York City, driver mistakes were a factor in 70 percent of pedestrian deaths. But until 2017, drivers were ticketed for less than 1% of crashes. We're not talking prosecuted, just getting a ticket written up. And an investigation of pedestrian deaths in Philadelphia found that only 16% resulted in any felony charges. And look, this is bizarre, right? This is an entire category of ways people kill each other in America that almost never gets any legal attention whatsoever, even though nearly 6,000 300 pedestrians were killed by cars in 2018 alone, which was a 10-year high. And look, I know people love to blame the victim and say, oh, well, pedestrians and cyclists, they don't obey the signals, blah, blah, blah. But that is not true. Drivers break traffic laws at around the same rate that cyclists do. This blindness is embedded in the very language we use to talk about this problem. Notice how people always talk about car accidents rather than car crashes, implicitly taking the responsibility away from the driver. Hey, don't worry about it. I'm sure it was just an accident. Ah, don't worry. It's not the driver's fault. Look, let me give you a specific example. The other week here in LA, a four-year-old girl was killed by a car and its driver as her mother was walking her to preschool. And a number of the articles written about it placed the blame not at the feet of the driver, but at the lack of a crossing guard. One headline didn't even mention the car or the driver. It just said, four-year-old girl dies walking to preschool with mom in Koreatown. Like, this girl just happened to drop dead and for no particular reason. No, it was a driver who killed her with a car. We can say this. We can address this, but we never do. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if you're operating a two-ton deadly machine, you bear the responsibility of doing so safely. And, you know, if you're so negligent or malicious that you kill a person by doing so, I think that's worthy of some measure of punishment. I think we'd all agree with that, right? But that's not the world that we live in. Instead, we have built our society around cars to such an extreme degree that we essentially have two separate legal systems depending on whether or not you're behind the wheel. It's like a magic trick. Step into a car and poof, you suddenly have the legal right to kill with impunity. Abracadabra. But once you park that car, get out, and start walking down the sidewalk, you lose that right and you also lose the protection you normally get from the government of being killed by another citizen.
citizen. If someone murders you with a car, sorry, they're not going to do anything about it. And it's not just vehicle fatalities that follow this pattern. In all aspects of American society, we have an entire legal regime that prioritizes cars and drivers. This legal regime is called automobile supremacy. And to tell us more about it, we have Gregory Schill on the show today. He's a law professor at the University of Iowa, and he's the author of the forthcoming law review article, Should Law Subsidize Driving? Please welcome Gregory Schill. Well, Greg, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Adam. It's great to be with you. So you wrote a law review article where you developed this idea called automobile supremacy. Can you tell me what that is? Yeah, so this is the idea that whether you want to drive or not, our system of laws essentially compels you to. And folks who don't drive are either taking a risk with their lives or going to great inconvenience uh, and expense to opt out of that system. But mm. even even for those folks, it's opting out is, is kind of an illusion because we're all subject to the externalities out of automobiles, that is the, the effects or the consequences of living in a car-centric society. The, the point I try to make in the article is that a lot of this is, of course, produced by public policy and to an extent by consumer preference. But in many ways, we are car-dependent by law. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to highlight here. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I've talked about in this podcast before how uh, I quit driving a year or two ago uh, I because I don't like it. <laughs> it was making me it's making me unhappy. Um, you know, I have bad eyesight and ADD, and you put that together, and I was like, I'm going to murder somebody one day, um, and I don't want to. <laughs> and it was just making me unhappy to do it. And I was like, I'm going to take the bus around LA, and of course, Lyfts and Ubers when I when I have to. But you know, I I moved to an area where I can take public transportation. Uh, regularly, which is certainly I'm in a lucky position to be able to do so because not everyone in L.A. can afford to live near public transportation. Um, But you're absolutely right. Even though I am sort of willing to go through inconvenience, right, in order to live the lifestyle I want to live, I admit I'm somewhat bloody minded about it and I can't expect everyone else to do the same, you know, because I give a shit more than most people. I am still uh, subjected to living in a car-based society. Like everything is still, you know, the the system of city planning is still set out so that uh, places I want to go are like take extra long to walk to. Like I still have to walk across super wide parking lots even mm-hmm. after, I, after I take the bus to the place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like my, versus say when I lived in Brooklyn and, you know, I could stop by the corner store on the way home and it was a lot quicker. Now when I stop by the corner store, I have to literally walk a quarter mile across a parking lot um, in order to get into the store. And yeah, there's the few it's dangerous because, uh, you know, people are very uh, reckless on, you know, impatient uh, when uh, crossing crosswalks in their vehicles. Uh, so, yeah, like I can't I'm not able to live in a uh, pedestrian society all by myself. I'm still subject to cars in this big way. That, that's just it. It's a collective action problem. It's a classic situation where joint action is required to make a change. Um, you could compare it to recycling, right? So a couple generations ago, or even into the 90s, many places didn't have curbside recycling. And so we'd place the onus on the individual to go and gather their uh, bottles and cans and go take them 
to an offsite facility. It was a real hassle. Not a lot of people did it. But even that required some collective action because you had to build those facilities and you had to have cities that sought out contracts with recycling providers and so forth. Right. So it's impossible for any one person to recycle. You have to have a system. Right now we have a system. And it's a system that produces really bad outcomes uh, because it's exclusively designed to optimize car travel. Mm. Yeah, and uh, this gets back to a point I hit on my show and on this podcast all the time that there are some problems that you can't solve individually through individual action. I've actually used this to talk about climate change that like, you know, you can't we can't all make individual choices that'll fix climate change. We need to take collective action as a society to change our way of life in the same way that even if every person in Los Angeles was like, I'm going to I'm going to take the bus and the subway that wouldn't improve our transportation system by itself because we would have to actually build more train lines, more bus lines like we'd have to uh, pass pass bond measures. We'd have to elect officials that uh, are going to get those things built. It's not the sort of thing you can just decide to do in order mm-hmm. to change the world. You have to, like, convince the rest of society to prioritize it as well. So, you know, I don't think it's like climate change. I think they're actually the same in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, it's so transportation uh, cars specifically are the number one source of greenhouse gases now in the United States. Um, that's just the emissions from the cars themselves. But then we have a massive infrastructure network, most of which is built for cars that itself entails production of tons and tons of additional emissions. Here I'm talking about roads, I'm talking about parking structures, parking lots, uh, freeways, driveways, all sorts of uh, types of pavement, essentially, that um, are incredibly wasteful and damaging to the environment because of the runoff and so forth that they cause, Mm -hmm. but specifically generate a lot of GHGs um, that bake the earth. Um, and you know, these are not even accounted for when we say that transportation is the number one, that cars are the number one source of greenhouse gas emissions. GHGs are greenhouse gases, correct? That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you have the greenhouse gases that are produced by making the cars. Making a car and transporting it mm-hmm. uh, is a very energy-intensive process. Um, and these are heavy, complicated machines, um, even electric cars. They are slightly less complicated, but the production of batteries is uh, a huge, hugely damaging to the earth. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a great example of how um, an individual trying to choose to walk or take a bus um, is not going to make a big impact. And if everybody tried to take the bus, um, we don't really have a way, a system of ratcheting up the provision of bus service. We do in the driving world. It's called level of service. It's encoded into federal law and state law. Um, and uh, agencies, departments of transportation are meant to expand roads continuously until more and more cars are accommodated if there's a growth in cars. We don't have that kind of principle in mass transit when it should actually wow. be more important. We should be encouraging people, not just people who are willing to be brave or are willing to go out of their way or incur extra expense, but we want everybody to be able to, in a practical and safe way, get around without generating these huge amounts of greenhouse gases. 
Yeah, and in fact, it almost seems like the opposite. Like, I, I won't get too local here, but in L.A., uh, where I live, the, you know, our our metro, our public transportation authority, which, you know, should be engaged in trying to increase the number of people riding public transit, um, given the city's goals, right? The city has very aggressive climate goals um, and goals about, like, making sure that less people are driving and more people are taking public transit. That's, like, what they want to do in the next couple decades. At the same time, ridership has gone down because uh, the price of gas has gone down and because of Uber and Lyft and things like that. So they've started cutting service. Like, they've started running buses less often and trains less often, which is the opposite of what you want to do if you want to increase the number of people riding because if they come less often, then less people are going to take them because they're less convenient because they're waiting at the bus stop for longer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they only really know how to cut service and the things that would improve the service, uh, like, for instance, taking... Taking away, like, uh, this is going to sound like insanity to a lot of people listening, but taking away the parking on the side of, you know, some of our major thoroughfares and turning them into bus-only lanes, right, would, mm-hmm. in, you know, probably triple the speed of the buses. I'm, I mean, you know, that's not exact, but that's off the top of my head. And, uh, you know, like, make, you know, that then the buses would actually be faster than cars that are stuck in traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, they could run them far more often, far more people could ride them, etc. But yeah, you're right, there just doesn't seem to be a legal mechanism mm-hmm. like by which a city council or a county planner would do that because we know what would happen. The the people who own the expensive cars who, you know, need a place to put their Lexuses have their city officials on speed dial and they know how to push back on that really hard. Um, and so our officials are very reactive against making any change that way and there's no pressure to do it. So it's sort of like, you raise a good point that our that our political system seems unable to make that sort of change. Yeah, I I, um, I agree completely. Um, we and by the way, there's data supporting everything you're saying. Um, New York, for example, um, just this month uh, barred private vehicle traffic from about a mile and a half of a major east-west street, um, 14th Street in Manhattan. And uh, what happened was. Um, it became a lot quieter, became a lot more pleasant to walk uh, or bike on that street. And the buses moved much faster, so much faster that the transit agency had to tell drivers to slow down. Um, mm. In addition, ridership jumped. It jumped a lot during the week, but it jumped even more on the weekend, which mm. I think was surprising to a lot of people. Number one, our transportation agencies mainly have in mind a 1950s world where, or at least their version, their impression of a 1950s world where you have the uh, male commuter coming in from the suburbs. He wants to get into the city as fast as possible and get out as fast as possible. Um, And the same, and if they live within the city, then the same. They want to just get where they're going as fast as possible without regard for the impacts on the neighborhood. But that's, of course, a really incomplete picture of who exists in society and what people do in society. Um, First of all, you have uh, men working hours that aren't nine to five, Monday to Friday. But then you also have men, women, children, uh, seniors, and so forth, who uh, are making trips other than from a residential area to a job center. You have them picking up groceries or making caregiving trips um, or running errands and so forth. These uses are so uh, denigrated or disregarded 
that um, there's just no, you know, there's no recognition. So a lot of places don't even have service on the weekends at all. Anyway, so this was surprising to a lot of folks. Um, And now to their credit, the New York Transit Agency has upped service. They're going to they're going to be adding buses and and looking at schedules so that this will become a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. But that, that goes directly to your point. Um, and it was difficult politically. They had to face down litigation. It's still being appealed to the state high court. Um, there are a lot of powerful, wealthy citizens who live close <laughs> right. to this street and they, they park their luxury cars nearby. They want to be able to continue to do that for free, paid for by you and me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so funny how how entitled they feel. Uh, I, uh, I'll get to your essential insight in a second, but I, I, I love just continuing to rant about this for a moment that like I remember when uh, I believe it was a while back. But when I still lived in New York and they were uh, taking away parking near Prospect Park, they were like removing a, a lane of parking. And the outcry was. Uh, well, you're making it impossible to have a car here in Brooklyn. And it was like, yeah, <laughs> that's the point. You, We don't think that people should be having cars in this densely populated part of the city. It's like not a good use of space. And there's like subways and buses that can get you around. And like if you do want to have a place to park, like you should pay for it. You shouldn't just be parking on the street. Like we don't want to subsidize that anymore. But um, that's such a foreign notion to uh, us as a society. Uh, but let's let's get away from, you know, our sort of, you know, uh, uh, population's assumptions about this and talk about the law um like how does the law actually punish people like myself who don't drive and or who are not able to drive and make their lives harder yeah so 100 million americans don't have a driver's license really Um, that's so far more than i would have thought yeah now some of them are children um Others are uh, senior citizens who are no longer able to drive. Others have disabilities, and and then some by choice and also by expense. Um, the expense of going through the process, but also uh, there we have a systemic social problem of punishing poor people. Um, and one way that uh, our court system does that is to take people's licenses, sometimes even for unrelated offenses. Um, so, you know, we have this huge population, almost a third of the country that cannot drive. Even for those of us that do have a license, um, we really should see ourselves as at best temporary drivers. Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> for the first phase of life, it's unlawful for us to drive. We are too young. And then even if we get a license on the very day that we become legally eligible and keep it uh, and are able to afford not just owning, but operating and garaging and repairing, maintaining, gassing up a car for our entire life after that. We have maybe 60 years of driving. For many of us, it'll be less. This is assuming that we're, uh, that we have, don't have neurological issues that preclude us from driving or physical disabilities. Um, but then for most of us, our driver, driving life expectancy, that is the uh, age at which it is no longer safe to drive, um, kicks in about 10 years on average before our life expectancy. So for wow. the final 10 years, we are also, um, it's not safe for us to drive. We're a danger to ourselves. We're a danger to loved ones in our cars and we're a danger to others outside the car. So it's really just this middle chunk of life that we're at best able to drive. And again, that assumes that we have the financial ability to afford a reliable vehicle, which is hardly universal. 
I think many folks are unaware of that. Um, you mentioned New York and Los Angeles. I'll give you an example of Detroit. I grew up about an hour from there. Detroit is Motown, the capital of the car. They've destroyed their public transit. They used to have a fantastic, like LA, fantastic streetcar network, one of the best in the world. They uprooted all of that. Um, and uh, only uh, in, in Detroit, 26% uh, of people don't have reliable access to a car. And they don't have good public transit there. Um, mm. So for uh, hundreds of thousands of people, um, they are unable to take advantage of the very thing that the city is famous for. Um, so you know, we've, we've precluded all these things. Um, on the law points, um, we'll just use you know, one example. So say you're one of the 100 million people that doesn't have a license, or say you're in the other group that has a license but isn't in your car 100% of the time. So our criminal law has a special category of homicide for somebody who kills you when the weapon is a car as opposed to, say, a baseball bat or a knife or a gun. Um, yeah. That, right? So that, that's vehicular homicide. We have a special category for that. It's not just a semantic thing. It carries um, a lower penalty, typically, than other types of manslaughter. Uh, it's unintentional homicide. Um, so that's a, a recognition that um, our system is dangerous, and it produces a lot of deaths. And sometimes the system will assign moral and criminal culpability, but it doesn't want to do it too harshly. We want to provide the special subsidy or cheaper way to commit homicide. Now, I don't think that's what <laughs> legislators had in mind, right? But that's that's the effect. If I told you that yeah. you, you could go up to your studio's roof and swing around a baseball bat and let go and let it fly off onto Hollywood Boulevard and kill somebody, we don't call that baseball bat homicide, uh, or being yeah. a clown homicide and, and send you to jail for much less time, if at all. Um, that's just manslaughter, and you're going to spend some significant time in prison. So it's, you know, I think it's symptomatic of a larger problem. That's one category. In the article, well, I go through about 10. I can get happy to go through <laughs> uh, each of them quickly or uh, however <laughs> well, you think is best. Well, no, I, I just want to talk about this concept uh, because, uh, you know, I do sort of understand how we got to this place, right? If you've got a system of transportation where everybody has to drive these deadly vehicles and if you look away for a moment, you're likely to kill somebody, right? It can, uh, but, or if, or if you are, you know, you can be more grossly negligent than that, right? There are like, there's a spectrum of negligence, um, but like these are deadly and people are going to kill each other with them, right? Um, if we were fully punishing every single person who committed one of these uh, manslaughters uh, or woman slaughters or person slaughters, um, that would like cause a lot of strife in this in the system, right? Um, because uh, you know we'd be levying you know uh, fair but harsh punishments on our fellow citizens all the time, and it would like increase I don't know the 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 psychic cost of participating in this system. Um, so in order to sort of keep it sane and running smoothly, it's a lot easier just to say, oh, yeah, no, it just happens. Like, don't mm -hmm. worry about it too much, right? Um, I, I think about this a lot. When we were talking about this topic in our writer's room for Adam Ruins Everything, because we did a, we did a segment on this on this topic, and I'm happy for you to, very happy that you're coming in to talk to us in about it in more depth. Um, but, you know, one of our writers in the room, we were talking about it, and, you know, she got a little emotional because she was like, well, well, I have to drive. I don't have a choice but to drive. Drive. And and the idea that 
like I could become a criminal or like a murderer, <laughs> you know, by driving um, is like a, a horrible thing to think of myself. I don't want to think of myself in that way. Like I, I can't take that on every time I get behind the wheel. Like, you know, accidents happen. And like I want to I would want to classify anything that I did as an accident because I can't take that moral responsibility as a matter of my practical life on a daily basis. It's just too much, you know, and, and I think that's true. True. Like she's she's right about that emotionally. Like, you know, it, it would it's very difficult for us to every time we're on the way to the store, think about like I could I'm basically taking a lo- loaded AK-47 on the streets and I and I have to like treat it that seriously. Um, and any mistake for me could result in someone's death. That's like. We, mm-hmm. You can't handle that on a daily basis. So instead, um, and, and, you know, imagine, you know, prosecuting every single person in that way as though they were handling a gun like it would be, you know, so taxing for our legal system. And these are folks who are otherwise, you know, upstanding citizens. Right. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it's a lot easier and cleaner for everyone involved to just say, no, these kinds of crimes are like. Eh, mostly okay. They just happen. It's an accident. Don't worry about it. Take that off for yourself. If anything bad happens, hey, you know, a couple eggs get broken. Don't worry about it. It's not on you. Um, and that's, like, I get how we ended up with a system that way, but it still means that, like, when you're walking down the street, your state, the state that represents you is not protecting you from being killed in this manner, like, as they are for all other crimes. Like, if, uh, you know, the state protects me against someone stabbing me, hopefully, most of the time. Um, uh, They don't protect everybody equally, but they do offer that protection of like, if you are murdered, we will punish somebody, (laughs) right? That's like one Mm -hmm. of the points of a government, but it doesn't (laughs) apply to cars because Mm -hmm. we're specifically asking every citizen in this country, no, you got to drive this thing. So you know what? We'll go easy on you if you fuck it up. Is that what's going on? I think that's right. Um, And I think that you're pointing up exactly how the system responded in the 20th century to this problem. So in the 20th century, you suddenly have the ability to go faster than a human could ever have gone before under their own power, meaning you control the car and you can go 20, 30, 40, 100 miles an hour. That was never true before. It really was Mm. a gift of freedom and... um, really empowering. I mean, people must have felt like Icarus a hundred years ago when they could get behind the wheel and do this stuff. Um, and uh, that's that's great. Um, it has some, some negative consequences. And so one way to approach it is to say, look, once we've built a system that mandates driving, we can't very well lock people up for the inevitable mistakes that they make because they're human. Um, and so we're going to have some deaths but we can't fill our jails with um, drivers like your writer, right? And I'm sympathetic mm-hmm. to that. I think, though, that that's not really a great solution. It's it's got <laughs> a, um, a. I think it's it comes from came from a good place maybe initially. In fact, these it was prosecutors that lobbied state legislatures to create the vehicular manslaughter offense because they had trouble persuading juries to convict people for regular manslaughter. So huh. their view was: look, we we can't get people to throw their fellow citizens in jail for mistakes that they fear that they themselves will be making tomorrow. Exactly. Um, uh, that, and mm-hmm. that's exactly how my writer was feeling in that moment. I could, mm-hmm. th- I could make that mistake. And then what happens to me? 
Yeah, I I drive, um, and I'm fearful of that. And we could talk about how to sort of be more personally responsible. But as we started the show off by saying, I, I don't think that's really the right frame. Um, so I I think you know that's that is the solution that we arrived at in the 20th century in the U.S. Um, that's not what's been happening more recently, especially outside the U.S., but at least as a formal matter in uh, dozens of cities and states in the U.S. that have formally embraced a different framework. This is a framework of systematic safety. So instead of approaching the transportation system and saying accidents are inevitable, deaths are inevitable, we're going to uh, not punish them or not punish them severely, um, we approach the system and saying, look, accidents are really likely, mistakes, deaths are really likely as a a product of this system. Lots of millions of people driving around in their own heavy, fast vehicles. So let's design streets so that they're safer, so that we can prevent collisions, especially the most dangerous collisions, um, and go from there. And that's a reorientation that's happened in the past 20 years under the banner of something called Vision Zero, which is the goal mm-hmm. of eliminating road fatalities. A lot of departments of transportation have embraced this. The U.S. DOT has. A lot of cities have. My state, Iowa, has our DOT. Um, and there are specific bills to move laws to move in that direction, Um Scott Weiner, who's a state senator in California, has sponsored one. It was actually enacted by the California state legislature um, by a large majority. The governor vetoed it. Um, hmm. But we're, you know, the uh, speaker of the New York City Council, Corey Johnson, has authored a master plan for the streets of the city of New York to remake how the city designs its streets. It's a project really begun under Bloomberg and continued uh, unevenly, but continued by de Blasio, um, the current mayor. So uh, yeah, there is movement on this and there's been progress, but it's, it's been really slow. Um, yeah. And that's, that's the second piece of this, uh, which is the first is the climate uh, destruction and you're in California. So, you know, you're under fire threat as far as I can tell, basically every day it's very serious. People are yes, losing their homes. Yeah. Yeah. Fire season um, is year round now. Yeah. Fire season is yeah year round. Um, the other piece, though, is just the public health problem that we're already seeing. Uh, so there are 89,000 deaths a year from cars. Um, 36,560 last year were from car crashes. But another 53,000 a year come from car pollution. Um, this is exhaust, but also particulate matter 2.5 and particulate matter 10. Those are technical terms for tiny, tiny objects, basically microplastics that are um, about 20 to 30 times thinner than a human hair. These are tiny things. They get aerosolized by brake design, by brake pads, and by the engine um, and uh, and tires. And then we breathe them in. And so they, they we ingest them. They become embedded in our hearts, in our lungs, our arteries, um, and uh, they kill people. They also cause a lot of brain damage, um, asthma, emphysema. So this is you know, a second problem that kills a huge number of people. It's about the equivalent of 10 Boeing 737 Maxes crashing every single week. Wow. So two of those and- crashed worldwide, and, and we grounded them worldwide. Um, but we were losing 10 of them a week from cars and we've taken only limited steps. 
Yeah, and so despite our improvement in you know the the tentative steps we're taking with Vision Zero, this is still another huge way that cars and our reliance on the car is like hurting us whether or not we drive, right? Even though I mm-hmm. don't drive, I'm still breathing all of that in. Um, well, we're going to keep unpacking this, but I got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Greg Schill. As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you want to safeguard yourself like that and live with the peace of mind, that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com slash Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com slash Adam. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Okay, we're back with Greg Schill. So, Greg, let's talk about some other ways that our society, our system of laws is structured to force people to drive and to punish people who don't. How does the tax code work to benefit car drivers and owners? So I think this is uh, not intuitive to many people, but our tax code is omnipotent and touches most aspects of life in America. Driving is no different. Um, There are three main ways that the tax code does this. The first is by uh, paying people to borrow more money to buy bigger houses. And we do that through the mortgage interest deduction. Now, this is available to you whether you want to buy a condo in Manhattan or you want to buy a farmhouse in Iowa. Um, But realistically, or at least empirically, the benefit has been shown to generate a higher number of houses in sprawl dependent areas, very, you know, mm-hmm. sprawly areas that are bad for the 
environment, bad for the climate, and also compel you to drive, that's because of zoning restrictions, um, which make it unlawful to build densely, to build apartment buildings. Some of the charming uh, old apartment buildings that we see in our big cities are now illegal to build. We have a charming uh, old such building here in Iowa City, population 75,000. It's illegal to build that kind of building today because of zoning. So what that means is when really? people are borrowing money, yeah, um, I've I've often wondered that you know like in uh, you know the city area like I I love a good city townhouse you know nice brownstone mm-hmm. uh, very beautiful that's what everybody loves uh, you know that that's the sort of you know the Cosby family house uh, <laughs> from the TV show uh, you know that that sort of image is like so romanticized and I often wondered like why don't they build those anymore and I didn't realize it was actually illegal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't build them anymore because they're illegal. Um, there are three ways those are illegal. Uh, first, we have minimum lot requirements. That's a fancy way of saying you have to have a big yard. Um, so those townhouses, the reason they're townhouses is because they are close to each other. Um, and uh, they are also, t- they tend to be relatively close to the sidewalk. Um mm-hmm. But the second requirement kicks in. That's called the maximum floor area ratio, or FAR. So that means that you can only build out to a certain percentage of the lot. So you have to have a big lot, big yard, and then you can only build one structure for one person or one family that covers only a certain percentage of the yard, usually a small percentage. And then third, we make you build parking, whether you want it or not, whether the market demands it or not. Um, so once you have to add a garage or a driveway, you know, it's, it's easy to see how these, um, types of buildings became unlawful across the country. So those are all features that require the housing to be less dense, which means Mm -hmm. that you're going to have more sprawl, which means people are going to have to drive from place to place Mm -hmm. uh, simply because cars are the only transportation method that can deal with a lack of density. Is that right? That's right. Um, And, you know, you mentioned walking a quarter mile to get a a jug of milk. For many people, it's a lot further because zoning laws prohibit mixed uses. So it's illegal to build. Oh, I just meant that the parking lot was a quarter mile. (laughs) Just getting getting the parking lot is an extra half. But yeah, no, point taken that like (laughs) I'm, I'm in a better position than a lot of people. Yeah. So that's the product. All of all of those things are a product of law. The reason there's a gargantuan parking lot is not because the market wants it. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that it's rarely full. Um, yeah. And uh, so it's it's mandated by law that it they have a certain number of spaces. Houston, for example, has 30 parking spaces per person. Wait, so, well, I'm sorry. Oh, like throughout the city of Houston, they've got mm-hmm. 30 parking spaces for every person. That's right. And they never mandated that as such. Like, there's no ratio that says you have to have 30 parking spaces for every human in Houston. But every time you want to build something, whether it's a housing development or an office or what have you, you have to add just an extraordinary amount of parking under the Houston code. Um, they've, mm-hmm. they've recently reformed this. Downtown and in a neighborhood called Midtown, adjacent to downtown, they have relaxed or abolished this. Um, and so that there is some movement here. Uh, San Francisco has abolished minimum, minimum parking requirements. Um, there's been legislation in other places as well, but this is still the norm in most of the country. So as you say, that ends up forcing us all to drive because it's not practical to walk anywhere. Sometimes there aren't even sidewalks. Um, so it's it's yeah. a safety issue. It's also just a practicality issue. 
And and I just got to say, I mean, we talked about this in the very first season of Adam Ruins Everything. Um, the parking is such a dead zone in any city. Like, think about this for folks listening. Next time you're walking through a parking lot or a parking structure, look around and remember how you feel when you're in those spaces, right? You're unhappy. If you're outside, the sun is beating down. There's no shade. It It's hot. You know, there's heat radiating off from the pavement. It's ugly. Uh, it, it takes a long time to move through when you're in underground parking or in a parking structure. It like smells like gasoline. You want to get out of there because there's fumes. And then think about all the better uses that space could be put to. Like these are places where people could be living or working or shopping or this could be a grassy area where people are able to, you know, in, in Los Angeles, like in my neighborhood, we don't have a basketball hoop that people can use within a mile of where I live, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. just like ki- kids are hopping the fence uh, to get into, you know, the local school so they can just like play a pickup game of basketball because there's no, there isn't a single park space, right? Um, mm-hmm. And there's, but there's a ton of parking. And like, if we just had a little bit less of that requirement, like we could be uh, putting that space to such better use instead of just letting it be a, a fallow desert in the middle of our own homes. That's exactly right. Um, it's funny when we're driving, we always have anxiety about finding a space near our destination. Um, and about a quarter of urban traffic is actually people hunting for parking. Um, yeah. There's a professor at UCLA named Donald Shoup who's really – uh, pioneered yep. scholarship on this point. I know you've spoken to him in the past on the show. Um, and, you know, he's proposed a lot of solutions that would address this. But I just want to sort of back up to a higher level for a moment. You know, parking is great when you need it, but otherwise it really destroys life. Um, creates this these <laughs> oceans of empty pavement. Um, I think, you know, in hell, there is only parking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really like that. But but still, like people are you hear people talk about uh, whenever people don't like a new development coming in, they say, well, where are all those people going to park? Like there's people have this stress about parking that it feels like, uh, A, we're all entitled to free parking. We should all get it mm-hmm. for free. And B, we're all stressed out that there isn't going to be enough. So it's just build, 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 build mm-hmm. um, when that just just gets us into a situation where we all need more cars, so we need more parking spaces, whereas if we all built in a more human-centric way, we mm-hmm. wouldn't need parking, and then we could build more dense things, and then we, we could have more, uh, it would be easier to get to everywhere we have to go without having to get in a car in the first place. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and that feedback loop, Adam, is fed by a couple other provisions of the tax code. So the way we set up commuter benefits... Um, you know, we, we understand that we might have to pay for parking at work, but we want to be able to get that deducted from our taxes. Um, and uh, current law allows you to deduct what you pay in parking at work from your taxes. So you pay pre-tax. By the way, that's also true for taking public transit. It was the case for a very long time that you could deduct much less for public transit. Um, mm. Now those are equal. But guess what? If you walk to work or you bike to work, you get no benefit at all. Right. So you're leaving money on the table. You're leaving money on the table. And in fact, you're taking money out of your wallet to pay your colleagues to drive to work because mm-hmm. you're subsidizing their parking. Um, we're also paying people to buy electric cars. Um, that might seem socially responsible um, until you drill down sure. a little bit. 
you can actually get a check for up to 7500 bucks, depending on the vehicle, uh, from the American taxpayer to buy an electric car, even if it's a luxury car. So if you want to buy a Porsche uh, electric hybrid, the government will pay you $6,700 to buy that. Um, mm -hmm. If you want to buy an e-bike, which the Porsche is like $100,000 and change. If you want to buy an e-bike, it's an electric bike that you can use to get up hills and get around no matter your um, physical uh, fitness level. Um, you're going to have to pay for that out of pocket. And by the way, if you want to park it, you're just going to have to do your best. You'll find a, a parking meter or a sign to lock it to. If you're lucky, a bike rack, and you'll use a lock you bought for 50 bucks at the bike shop. And that's that. Yeah. For a car, we build these extremely expensive, elaborate structures, about $50,000 a space just to build a parking structure. Mm -hmm. And then there's the maintenance and damage from uh, nature and uh, just deterioration over time. Um, and then, of course, the loss of tax revenue. We could be using that land for a productive purpose uh, and to generate jobs. But instead, we dedicate it to an ancillary purpose, to parking, which is just very um, space-intensive use of a land. So I understand why, on the face of it, okay, California or the federal government might want to give a subsidy to someone buying an electric car, especially in California where we have bad air quality. We want to get the air quality to be better, so let's get people to replace their uh, gas-guzzling cars with electric cars, you know, or cash for clunkers, that sort of program. I understand that, how that might have an effect. However, if people were, people will do whatever you incentivize them to do via the tax code to some greater extent, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so... If we were to give people, if we really want to cut back on emissions, well, then we should be incentivizing people to take the bus or take the train or or walk to work, right? Like mm -hmm. you should make people think, oh, wait, if I if I move, if I have to get a new job and I have to move, well, hold on a second. If I live downtown and I walk or take the bus to work, the government will give me a check for five grand or whatever, right? Um, that'll mm -hmm. that mean that'll defray the cost of that you know uh, downtown condo I'm going to get instead of the place off in the suburbs. Um, mm -hmm. And that'll factor into all of your reasoning, just like the mortgage interest deduction does if you're considering, should I buy a house or should I rent, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so why why not do that, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> wh why is it that, like, uh, you know, I'm making a, if someone, some the even better choice we would agree for the climate would be to not buy the Tesla, but to take the Dash bus instead. And why aren't we subsidizing that behavior? That is such a good question. And I, I've never never thought about it before. Yeah. Well, we, to be clear, we do to an extent. I mean, public transit agencies receive public funding and you can deduct your bus sure. pass from your taxes, but the structure of those subsidies is um, not as generous to people taking mm -hmm. public transit as it is to people driving. Um, and you get no subsidy at all for walking or biking. Until 2018, You for about a decade, you got a subsidy for biking, but the Trump tax bill did away with that. It was 20, all of 20 bucks a month. They, they took it away. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. I, I think there's another angle to this as well, which is um, if you drive a Tesla, it's true that you have no tailpipe emissions, um, but that's only one piece of the puzzle. Um, you still are generating a lot of these PM 2.5 and PM 10 emissions that are responsible for up to 90% of deadly emissions in traffic. So when you where, have where are those emissions coming from? They're coming from the tires, from tire wear, ah. and from the brake pads. You can't see it. 
Um, but you unfortunately breathe it in and they stay lodged in your heart. You've seen those pictures of like a whale will wash up on shore and they cut it open. It's full of plastic. Yeah. Unfortunately, our organs are a little closer to that right now than we would like. You might not wow. be able to see it, um, but that's what's going on. Uh, these are microplastics. Um, San Francisco recently found that trillions of them are washing into the San Francisco Bay every single year just from car tires and, and brake pads. But directly, these enter the human body through breathing and mm-hmm. um they in traffic again, so not in the rural area, but in a place like any big city or any suburb, which is where uh, a large majority of Americans now live. Up to ninety percent of this um, comes not from the tailpipe, which that's where the Tesla helps you, but from the brake pads and the tires, where the Tesla doesn't help you. So we're we're still paying people to buy cars that produce extremely deadly emissions. Um, so sometimes they'll say zero emission vehicle, and I, I can't help but shake my head when I see that. And then, of course, none of this has anything wow. to do with car crash deaths and injuries, which mm-hmm. are almost 40,000 a year um, and have been jumping up for people walking and biking. Um, for people biking, they're up over 6% last year, and they were up the year before as well. Um, and they... Uh, generate lots of congestion, they make our cities kind of unlivable. The traffic is a nightmare, especially if you're on a bus, like you were saying, because we haven't made the political decision. To We have made a political decision. The political decision is we're going to allocate all of our public road space to cars. And if a bus wants to join the mix, that's fine, but it doesn't get any special privilege, even though there are 100 people on the bus and there's one person <laughs> in the Tesla. Right. right. Have you ever seen one of those charts of, of how many, if you took every person on the bus and put them each into their own car, how much more space they would take up? It's massive. Uh, it's like, you know, a full two city blocks worth of traffic can fit onto one bus. Um, and yeah, so you'd think like, hey, maybe those uh, maybe those should get a separate lane, but that almost never happens. Um, uh, what's wrong with, I know you've written about how we uh, enforce speed limits in America. Mm-hmm. What uh, Walk me through that, please. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure everyone is <laughs> very interested uh, because speed limits are such a topic for debate. So we think about speeding as drivers. We never want to get pulled over for speeding. But we also know that you're not pulled over for going one, two, or even five or eight miles an hour over the limit most of the time. Um, you have, you know what the limit is, but you also know that the police routinely allow people to go faster. Um, so that's one issue. Um, but how about the adjustment of speed limits? They are set in the first instance by statute, by the legislature, but then they can be adjusted by departments of transportation. Most DOTs use something called the 85th percentile rule. Um, This is, as far as I can tell, this is a basically unique rule of law. Um, I've been scouring the law books to try to find another example of this. Tell me if you think it sounds crazy. I obviously do. Um, So... What happens under the 85th percentile rule is that the speed limit will be raised until only 15% of people are speeding. So 85% (laughs) of people won't be breaking the law. So just to put this concretely, let's say that a particular type of machine gun is illegal. But the law says if 16% of people buy the machine gun, then we change the law and we make that machine gun legal. 
Yeah. So or or legal for that many number of people to buy it or what? Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. You're mm-hmm. you're saying, well, let's not make a law that will change what people do. Let's just make a law that matches what people do. And then if mm-hmm. people do something different, well, we'll change the law because the goal is to just write a law that makes it okay to do what people are already doing. That's not what laws are fucking for. What what was going on? Yeah, I think you could talk to a lot of black and brown people behind bars who um, could attest that that's not how we handle drug policy, for example, mm-hmm. uh, or any other mm-hmm. area of law. So actually, drug policy is a good counterpoint. Um, you know, in the past decade or so, uh, public opinion has really changed on marijuana. And a lot of states have now legalized marijuana. But that's been through a democratic process. Um, what's happened is it's been different state to state, but basically people or their representatives have enacted laws that say that we are not going to criminalize marijuana or maybe we'll even legalize it and subject to certain constraints and so forth. But the law was changed through democratic process um, following a change in public opinion, but not because public opinion didn't automatically change the law. Um so here we let people who are lawbreakers, it's not even public opinion, like we didn't have a vote on how how high the speed limit should be outside of your kid's school. I think most people would say not that high, but right now speeders are setting that speed limit by reference to the yeah. 85th percentile rule. Yeah, the the people who are breaking the rule are able to change what the rule is. Uh, and... But again, I, I sort of understand why it works that way. I remember when I started driving, I started driving at about the age of 30 regularly. When I moved to L.A., I lived in New York my whole life, so I, I didn't drive there. And I've had bad eyesight, like I like I uh, told you. So I'm a late bloomer. So when I came to L.A., I started driving. And I drove daily for three or four years before I said, I've had enough of this. So I've, I've had my I had my time behind the wheel, right? But I was startled to find when I started driving that the speed limit, you just don't use it. Like, unless you're on, you know, uh, uh, an expressway, you know, on an interstate in the Midwest and you're just going in a straight line and there's no one else around, then you might keep an eye on the speed limit. But, like, for city driving, you just drive as fast as everyone else. <laughs> like, I remember I would, like, like I would, st- I started driving with my girlfriend and I was like, oh, the sign says 25, so I'll go 25. She's like, what are you doing? Like, you're, <laughs> you're, why are you driving this way? I was like, I'm following the signs. Like, you don't do that. Nobody does that. That's not how you drive. Um, and in fact, there's a really great book uh, uh, I read a couple of years ago called Traffic. I forget the name of the author, mm-hmm. um, but it, you know, just about like the social psychology of driving. And, and he writes about how no one obeys the speed limit. We actually just pick up on uh, like cues from what we're driving, you know, the the makeup of the street that we're driving on to figure out how fast to drive. So yes, how fast the other traffic is going, but also you know how wide is the lane that we're in? Are there obstacles mm-hmm. on either side? Do we feel that there are people crossing the street frequently? Um, are there, you know, for instance, if you're driving through a residential area where there's parked cars on either side and it's kind of tight and there's a lot of trees and a lot of buildings and there's a lot of people walking up it on the sidewalk, you'll naturally drive slowly. But if you're driving mm-hmm. on, you know, a, a big two, a big four lane and there's a median strip in the middle and there's all, you know, uh, and there's no trees or anything like that. Trees are like apparently a big, a big cue. You'll naturally mm-hmm. drive faster. Um, Um, Mm -hmm. And so 
I, I get that why why the people setting the speed limits might feel like, okay, well, we can't really control these people. People aren't using the signs, so let's just, uh, you know, set set it to whatever people are naturally using and change the road instead. But still, we're talking about as a matter of law, that means we don't have a way to prosecute people. Like if someone is speeding and kills someone because, I mean, the, the, the chances of killing someone go up massively depending on how fast you're going, going from 35 to 45. I forget how much it jumps, but it's a huge amount. Can't, es- can't escape physics. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that means that, like, we're not able to prosecute folks uh, mm-hmm. who are recklessly endangering the rest of us by speeding. Yeah, that that's a great book, first of all. Tom Vanderbilt uh, is the author. Thank you. That's his name. That's, yeah. He does a really masterful job of laying out um, – of, of laying out the role of design and what are known as human factors in mm-hmm. shaping um, our driving behavior. Um, I think this is actually a healthy focus, um, and that's where things have gone in the 21st century, um, to some extent, again, in the U.S., but but really radically in other countries. So 44 countries now, for example, including dozens of our peer nations, uh, wealthy nations in Europe and elsewhere, but, but also countries that... Um, have, are a lot less uh, advantaged than us. Um, they require that vehicles now be designed to be safe for people outside the vehicle. So hmm. we we rate vehicles only for crashworthiness. That's what NHTSA does, National Highway Transportation Safety Administration. So that's a yeah. consumer-focused standard, um, like our fuel economy standards. That, how that, that how is, likely is it to kill the person in the car? Is what we is what we rate that's it right. for. That's right. That's um, right. And you know, but we know that SUVs are three times as likely to kill pedestrians as regular cars. Three and, times. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, so uh, the data on this is just coming up. There was a massive report in the Detroit Free Press last year documenting this. Um, there was a draft regulation in the twilight months of the Obama administration to address it. It got scrapped. Um, so right now we are an outlier. For, again, 44 other countries have signed on to this. It's called GTR 9. It's a UN regulation um, that mandates that car makers consider the safety of people outside the car. Now, that might sound a little funny. Like, how do you make a car safe for people that it hits? Um, but um, there are a lot of design features that car makers can add yeah. or avoid, right? So one big one is leaving space between the hood and the engine so that... Mm. If you do go on top of the hood, uh, there's some space for a crumple before you hit uh, hit the hard engine. Um, oh, okay, I see. Yeah, yeah. That, that's one just example. Make it, just make um, it make it a little bouncier. Make it a little bouncier. Yeah, I mean, you kind of want the eight year old to bounce. Um, and unfortunately, <laughs> right. it's car, car crashes are the leading cause of death for young people, both in the U.S. and worldwide. Um, well, and and I'm guessing if you've got a, a like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm just sort of trying to picture why an SUV would be more dangerous. It's so much higher off the ground mm-hmm. and the front of them tend to be so flat that if mm-hmm. it hits you, it's like hitting a brick wall that or it's like a brick wall hitting you um, where mm-hmm. you're just going to be propelled like onto the ground. Whereas like if you imagine like, I don't know, like an old uh, Honda Civic, like right, mm-hmm. <laughs> right after they started, you know, after they stopped being boxy and they started being kind of smooth 
smooth in the front. If it mm-hmm. hit you, it might knock your legs out from under you, and then your butt falls onto the top of the car, and then you sort of roll your way up. Not a great scenario, but better than, you know, you're going to decelerate more slowly and thus have less damage done to you in that scenario. You're going to go, because you go up over the hood, and uh, you'll sort of roll to a stop. That's that's right. In fact, I I owned one of those Honda Civics. Thankfully, never had quite that experience in it. But um, uh, yeah, that that's just right. Um, and this has been shown empirically. Um, a car, if it, a lot depends on the specifics, but typically somebody will go onto the hood and maybe the windshield. Um, that's a lot better than going under the wheels. Yeah, uh, I mean that's car. how that's how you do a stunt hit. Like when you watch, you know, we, I've d- been on shows where we do, you know, stunt. Someone gets hit by a car, and they basically jump onto the hood, right? <laughs> like it looks mm-hmm. good for camera, but it's not that dangerous because they're sort of sliding. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. going under the wheels or or getting blasted right from the front is like that's much more dangerous. Yeah, so you know, encouraging design modalities that are responsive to pedestrians and other vulnerable road users, um, softer bumpers, um, hood design, removing structures that are more rigid than they need to be. There's a trend recently of, I think it's probably a psychological thing, um, people adding what are known as bull bars to the front of their cars and trucks. These are these like military looking grates that mm. um, you started seeing it on police cruisers, but now it's it's pretty common uh, especially on trucks. And these are steel um, items that actually interfere with the car's own ability to absorb shock. So I think they're actually, they may be bad for the driver themselves, but they're not rated for that. Um, right, because they're harder than the rest of the car. So the car's not yeah. going to crumple in the same way. And, and crumpling is what causes the car to decelerate more slowly, which makes it more safe in a collision. Right. I mean, if if you're in the car, you want it to crumple. <laughs> yeah. Nobody wants a high repair bill, but uh, other things being equal, you'd rather that the, that the car ex- absorb more of the right. uh, force of the collision rather than your body. Right. And also, I remember reading that uh, it's now much more common for cars to have a really built up like pillar between the front windshield and the side window, which creates like much larger blind spots that, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the sort of scenario where you're you're turning, making a left turn across an intersection where, you know, you have to look for people crossing the street. It like puts a blind spot right where they're often crossing. Um, I've experienced this myself. I used to drive a pre and it has a huge, like, pit, like uh, blocked off pillar there. Uh, that's mm-hmm. another way that cars become more dangerous for pedestrians. Absolutely. What you're referring to is called the A pillar. And these are the, mm. um, the pillars on the left and right hand side of the windshield. Um, they have been uh, hardened and thickened in uh, recent years, uh, partly to make it safer for the occupant in the event of a rollover, um, but also to absorb collisions from other cars. Um, there's just a pretty obvious arms race, you know, element to this, right? Where if, if the government and insurance agencies only rate vehicles from a consumer standpoint, from a, from a driver standpoint, like I want to buy a car, how am I going to keep my family safe? Totally reasonable. Right. But if that's the only criterion, we don't consider what happens when you're driving around a tank, which that is the end point of this. In 100 years, if we continue on this path, we're all going to be in tanks. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, like, is that what we want? Is that is that the kind of society that we want to live in where, 
if you're outside of the tank, then you're just a goner. I mean, it's already yeah, too Yeah, you could just drive but... over pedestrians and never even notice because they just yeah. sort of like crumple under your wheels. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's a good point. Like I subscribe to Consumer Reports and they rate cars and they rate them on their safety, but they don't rate them on what is their safety to people who they hit. The crash dummies are only inside the car, not outside the car, basically. Um, well, uh, tell me this. We're, we're getting towards the end here. Uh, I want to know like this, this system of automobile supremacy where our whole system of life is built around the car and you're penalized for not driving. How did we build it? Where did it come from? And how do we take it apart? Like, I'm sure there's plenty of people listening to this in their cars right now thinking, all right, well, I uh, agree with the program, but what the hell do I do about it? I still need to get to work, and being in a car is the only way I can do it. So um, how do we get here, and where do we go from here? I think we got here through an unfortunate series of missteps. Um, There are a lot of stories one could tell about that. Peter Norton has a book called Fighting Traffic where he traces this history methodically. Um, There are others who've written on it as well. When the car emerged on the scene at the turn of the last century, um, it was not really welcomed. It was seen as a hazard, a danger. Uh, Cars were killing people. Um, That was a new thing back then. The president in 1924 convened a national conference on this. There was a cartoon, um, really a polemical uh, article, a polemical or editorial accompanied by a cartoon on the front page of the New York Times with the angel of death driving a car over the dead bodies <laughs> of children. <laughs> and yeah, so, so like 100 years ago, you know, these things were really controversial, but they were also really appealing, especially once they became yeah. affordable. And especially once the government was persuaded by the car companies, the oil companies, the mm-hmm. highway builders, trucking companies, and so on. This group of actors that got together, um, they organized politically after uh, popular opposition started to uh, to concentrate on getting cars out of cities or getting cars to to observe maximum speed limits and so forth, which was a new idea back then. Um, and they organized they, they, under the banner of motordom. That was their name for themselves. And motordom, you know, helped create the system we have today. But I, I don't think it's only a conspiracy sort of story. Um, the reality is for any individual, it's very rational if you can afford it to get around by car. Um, it's convenient. It's, it's, it's safer than some other methods. Um, you can control the climate and it's comfortable. It's quiet. Um, all those things. But as a society, we're now feeling the impacts. We're feeling them in the climate space where it's the number one source of GHGs and literally burning California right now. And number yeah. two, public health killing almost 90,000 people a year, 10, 737 maxes every week. Um, the equivalent. So, you know, that's, that's kind of where we're at. And then, how do we change that? Well, step one, yeah, I think. I, l- is, let me let me just mm-hmm. say, I I agree. I th- I think we're all realizing that our decision, uh, whether it was based on conspiracy or you know we bought into it to our ourselves as a culture, I think it was both, was mm-hmm. clearly like a like a generational mistake or a multi generational mistake. Like that mm-hmm. we you know it's starting to look like what an error we made starting in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And it feels like 200 years from now, there, there, 
they're going to be looking back at, on this period and going like, my God, whoever thought this was a good idea? <laughs> because <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's going to look like, uh, uh, you know, leeches and snake oil in terms of, oh, you know, the, uh, the odd things that people of the past did. I know leeches are still sometimes used in medicine today, but, you know, you get what I'm saying. It's yeah. going to be like, oh, the, the follies of our ancestors to have required everyone to buy an expensive two-ton death machine. Yeah, so I, I agree. Um, nothing is regulated. A lot of things are regulated. Nothing is regulated as generously as cars. So um, pharmaceuticals, we'll take that as an example. People say, you know, I, I have to have a car. I need it to get around. Um, I get it. And in many cases, that's true. A lot of people need pharmaceuticals. They're life-saving, um, whether we're talking about penicillin or opioids or what have you. But these are very closely regulated. Um no one denies that millions of Americans need opioids, but we've seen um, in tragic relief how deadly it can be when these deadly items are underregulated. And we're yeah. working hard now to to make progress on that. And there's no one, there's no silver bullet, but the answer surely is not to just keep doing what we're doing. So we can't double down on the mistakes of the 20th century that you alluded to. Um, I think plane crashes are another example. So flying used to be a lot more dangerous than it is today. Last Mm -hmm. year, there were 556 crash deaths worldwide in planes. 556. Last year, in cars... And a lot of those are small planes, I assume, too. You're you're not not talking Mm -hmm. like consumer flights. Um, I actually don't have the data at that level of granularity. No so I, problem. I can't, I can't comment on that. But <laughs> Okay, um, no worries, no worries. <laughs> yeah, I want to be careful I, about I appreciate that. your honesty. Yeah. Um, so about 556 people died last year in plane crashes. 1.35 million. So 1,350,000 people were killed by cars last year just from crashes. Pollution deaths were tens of millions. Uh, wow. So this is an epidemic, um, and we, we've not taken effective action. What I would like to do going forward, in addition to changing the areas of law that we've talked about today, I think we have to change how we think about the car. Um, you know, I'm old enough, Adam, and maybe you are to, to remember when you could smoke in restaurants mm-hmm. and you could yeah. smoke on a plane even. And there, were, there might be a smoking section in a restaurant, and so the rest of us in the non-smoking section had to put up with it. it but it, it was never that great. Even when there were separate sections, <laughs> right. um, you know, it's still, you can't stop the smoke from filtering over. And I remember when Mayor Bloomberg in New York, I was living in New York City at the time, banned smoking in bars and restaurants. And before the ban went into effect, there was hue and outcry about how it's going to put the nightlife industry out of business. No one will go yeah. to restaurants and bars anymore. And of course, the opposite is what happened. People loved being able to go and enjoy themselves uh, and meet with friends and family and not have to breathe in toxic fumes. Um, and, and so, and this- I'll be honest. I was a smoker at the time and I was like, uh, I wasn't living in New York. I was living upstate in college, but I was like, ah, this is terrible. And then I realized when you're smoking in a bar, it's fun to go outside and smoke out front. Like if you're smoking, it's like, oh, you go hang out with the smokers in front. Then you go back out. Then you go back inside. It like was Mm -hmm. not bad even for smokers. Um, Mm -hmm. Not that you should be smoking. Um, I'm I'm certainly happy I quit. But like, yeah, it was it was fine. (laughs) Yeah. And, And that's just the thing is we didn't ban smoking. We yeah. banned smoking in, in a limited number of circumstances where 
people don't really have a choice. I mean, you could say, we'll go to a restaurant that doesn't have smoking. But if you remember, there were very, very few restaurants that banned it outright because they were worried about losing business. This was a, a collective mm-hmm. action problem, not that different from the one we face today with cars. So we didn't ban smoking. What we did was we prohibited smoking in certain public settings to reclaim those settings for uh, public health and for livability. And then we also raised taxes on cigarettes. And now smoking mm-hmm. is more expensive and you also can't do it in uh, schools. You can't do it in restaurants. You can't do it on the plane. Um, before my time, I was told here that back in the day, you could actually smoke in the hospital at the university <laughs> here at the hospital. And I get, that's just appalling to me, but it must have seemed normal at the time. So over time, we've we've developed better science, but also a better social awareness of the costs of smoking. And we've, we have confined it to places where if you don't smoke, you are relatively unimpeded by smoking, by the activity. Um, and that's improved our quality of life. It's also improved our public health outcomes. We should do the same for cars. We should think about smoking as something yeah. that we have confined, not banned, but we charge for it. And we don't allow it to ruin uh, our lives. Um, I hope the step in New York to inaugurate the busway on 14th Street, which has been just wildly successful beyond even the dreams of the people who planned it and fought for it for years. Um, mm-hmm. San Francisco just just approved unanimously um, a plan for Market Street, just one of the main drags there to fully pedestrianize it and and have buses and trams on it. Um, so I, I think we're seeing movement in this direction. We need to expand that and accelerate it, including outside of big cities, so that everybody has the opportunity to benefit from better public health. Um, and so we can start tackling climate change in a real way. Buying Teslas is not helping address climate change. If we get people walking, biking, taking reliable, safe, fast, affordable buses, that will do so much more. And it's not even that expensive to do. And that way the goal can be, hey, if you live, especially, hey, rural areas or, uh, you know, et cetera, if you like driving into the mountains, you can have a car. That's wonderful. We have access to that. But we're no longer penalizing people who can't afford or prefer not to drive with pollution, with making them pay extra, with uh, taking their lives into their own hands. Um, And we're not making it mandatory to drive just to get to work or to school. That would be... uh, a goal I think we should all be able to share, right? I agree. And and I just also want to say, you know, you said as a smoker, you didn't mind the smoking ban. So I, I drive, um, I have a, I guess a different, I come to this from a different place maybe than you do. I grew up in Michigan. I was going to the Detroit Auto Show as a kid before I could walk. <laughs> um, I loved having my first car. Uh, didn't come until after college, but uh, I was so happy. And, you know, as a driver, this world would be better for me to drive in. It would be safer. There would be less traffic. Um, and I could also enjoy other parts of my life that are not driving, right? Yeah. Um, even if I like to drive or choose to drive, um, there may be many times when I don't. And I think a lot of us, even folks that don't come to this from an ideological place or, or because they had an opportunity at some point to walk, even folks who've always been kind of compelled to drive, are realizing now how much of their life is scripted, how many of their transportation choices specifically have been made by people who are long dead. I mean, we have a a real (laughs) dead hand problem. Um, So like 
you know, we don't let people from the 19th century tell us how to do a lot of things in our lives. We, we make our own choices, but here we're really handcuffed, uh, handcuffed by the past. Well, I hope one day we can change that. And I really appreciate you coming onto the show to talk to us about it. Thank you so much for being here, Greg. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you didn't kill anybody with your car while you were listening. Pray to God you didn't. Um, but that is it for us this week on Factually. I want to thank our producer, Dana Wickens, our researcher, Sam Roudman, and Andrew W.K. for our theme song. You can find me on Twitter at Adam Conover. You can sign up for my mailing list at adamconover.net. And we'll see you next week on Factually. Thanks so much for listening. That was a HeadGum Podcast.